The scripture reading this morning is from Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16. I love this passage of scripture. So, let's read. Since then, we have a high, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So reading is the scripture. You may be seated and allow me to pray for us as we begin. Father God, we come to uh, this Old Testament passage, Father, knowing that we can't unhitch from it, Father. It is the foundation upon which the gospel uh, thrives and grows, Father. And so, God, we ask that even in this text that was written thousands and thousands of years before our time, Father, that we will have our eyes opened and our hearts broken, Father, to see um, what it is that you want us to see, Father, to see the truth and the life-giving gospel that you have planned for all eternity, God. Since eternity past, God, you have been working and planning and, and implementing your redemption, Father. We thank you for that. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. You can always tell when it's um, Women's Retreat Weekend. Uh, some say because of the, the empty seats and everything like that, but it's, it's never the giveaway to me. The giveaway is always the guys with the bags under their eyes and crawling to the children's check-in, begging us to take their kids. And so uh, we may have 50-some-odd women gone, but our children's ministry is hopping right now. So um, anyway, we're, we're glad that the ladies could get away and get a bit of a break, and they will be back with us uh, this next week. Um, if you're new with us today... We've been going through the book of Exodus, verse by verse. Uh, we believe that uh, God um, uh, has spoken to us through His Word, and that's why we make it such an important thing for us to uh, go through the Bible. And so, um, going all the way back to Abraham, God revealed His desire to dwell with this fallen people. But the question remains, how can a fallen people who are sinful, who are unholy, who are unclean, who are worthy of judgment. How can a fallen people dwell with a holy God and not die? According to the Bible, two things were needed to approach God safely. Number one, there needed to be a holy place where God could dwell with Israel and yet not, de and yet not destroy his people with his fiery presence with his burning hot holiness. This is why the tabernacle was given and why the construction plans were given in chapters 25 through 27. In the tabernacle, God would meet with his people and would dwell with them and walk among them and they would not die. But second, they needed a holy person, a mediator who could enter into God's presence on their behalf. Not just anyone can enter into God's presence and live. Those of us that are sinful, those of us that are broken, which is who? Everyone enters into the presence of God. We get burned up alive. God says no one can see the face of God and live. And so what we need is a holy person 
who would be able to enter and serve on our behalf in God's holy presence. This is why the text at hand, Exodus 28 through 30, is so important. Namely, it is in this section that God lays out instructions for ordaining priests who can go in and out of God's presence as representatives of the people. The consecration, that's the process of becoming holy. The process of making the tabernacle and the priest holy would eventually lead to God's dwelling being established in the midst of Israel. In Exodus 29, 43 through 46, God promises this. I will consecrate, I will make holy the tent of meeting and the altar. There's the, there's the place. Aaron also and his sons I will consecrate, consecrate to serve me as priests. There's the person. And I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God. And they shall know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. In this, we see what God is doing in his big picture redemption. If you want to summarize what God is doing with his dwelling place and his mediators, here's what he's doing. God is working to give his people a holy person and a holy place so that they, his people, can live in God's holy presence. You can track that theme all the way through the pages of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. God giving his people a holy person and a holy place so that they can dwell in his holy presence. Now, we looked at the holy place last week. And so this week, we're going to look at the holy person. And we're going to see that the same that was true of the tabernacle is true also of the priesthood. Remember that the tabernacle pointed backward to Eden, and it also pointed forward to Jesus, and then on into the new kingdom that Jesus is bringing. The same way the priest points backwards, and it points forwards. The priest The priesthood of Aaron points backward all the way to the garden, and it points forward to our great Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, we know that the tabernacle pointed back to Eden, but what does Aaron point back to? If you think about his service, his role, and how who he who he is and what he's going to do, what do you think of? I think if we think rightly of Aaron as a priest, we think of Adam, the first priest. There are many reasons for understanding Adam to be a priest, but one of the primary reasons that we see is what Adam did in the garden that made him a priest. In Genesis chapter 2, you'll remember God made the man and he put him in the garden of Eden to do what? To work it and keep it, to abath and shamar, to, to serve and to guard it. It was Adam's role to keep this sanctuary paradise that God had created pure and clean and to keep all the unholy and defiled things out of it. And this is exactly the same pair of words that we find describing the work of a priest in the tabernacle. For example, in Numbers chapter 18, verse 6, Aaron and his sons work and keep in the tabernacle. So why is this important? It's just one small step forward towards the redemption of mankind. One small step forward to the restoration of man's Edenic work in God's sanctuary. Everything from the priest's clothing, to their ordination, to their service, whispers the renewal of our holiness and our holy service to a holy God. Not only is God bringing us back to a place, He's creating a new people who will be able to serve him with holy hands, holy minds, and holy hearts once again. 
He's creating new atoms who will serve in the garden and keep it in the way that he wants. That's why the priesthood is important. It points back all the way back to Adam. Now, just as we approach Exodus 28 through 30, I want you to imagine walking into a job interview. And you sit down and you sit across from the interviewer. And before he even tells you what you're going to do, what your responsibilities are, what your qualifications have to be, who you're going to report to, he goes into the intricate details of the dress code. Before, before you barely get your name out and he starts to list out, and here's our code of dress, and he starts to lay it out for you. That's exactly what we find happening in Exodus 28 through 30. Before we even know what the priest is going to do or how they're going to become priests, God lays out what they're going to wear. I found this very bizarre, just as someone who's studying the Bible. Is God some kind of fashion devo? I don't know what, what is the masculine form of diva, but is he just some kind of, is he some kind of fashion model? It's just, he's designing this and sketching it out and saying, and this is what he's going to wear. It's going to look fantastic, right? Is that what God's doing? Well, no. According to the priesthood, according to Exodus 28, the clothes make the man. The clothes make the man. It's the holy garments that's going to, that he's going to wear that actually makes Aaron holy in God's presence. We're going to see the significance of this later. Before he lays out anything else, he wants Aaron, he wants Moses, and he wants Aaron's sons to understand how and what they're going to be wearing in God's presence. Now we can come to the introduction here in the first five verses of chapter 28. Here's what he says. Then bring near to you Aaron, your brother, and his sons with him from among the people of Israel to serve me as priest, Aaron and Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, Eleazar and Ithamar. And you shall make holy garments for Aaron, your brother, for glory and for beauty. You shall speak to all the skillful whom I have filled with the spirit of skill, that they make Aaron's garments to consecrate him for my priesthood. These are the garments they shall make, a breastpiece, an ephod, a robe, a coat of checkerwork, a turban, and a sash. They shall make holy garments for Aaron, your brother, and his sons to serve me as priest. They shall receive gold, blue, and purple, and scarlet yarns, and fine twine linen. Now, just from those first five verses, there's much that could be said. There's a lot of details in that, but there's two particular things that I want us to see. Number one, the clothes are made for glory and for beauty. Now, just to show you how amazing this is, the priest stands as a representative of God. They see the glory and the beauty of his clothes, and they're reminded of the glory and majesty of the Almighty Creator. Like Adam, the priest is clothed in the image of God to image the Creator, to image and glorify to express his majesty and his beauty. So when a person saw the priest, they were reminded of God. And when they thought about God, they were reminded of the grace that he was their God and that he dwelt with them. The whole purpose was to bring to mind, just like the priest will bring the people to mind to God, the priest will also bring God to mind for the people. Now second, the clothes are connected with the tabernacle. You see the very same material list for both. The same materials that God wants for the tabernacle, he wants now for the priest's clothes. The priest's clothes are to be made of fine twine linen, just like the curtains of the tabernacle. The clothes were to be holy, just like the tabernacle itself is holy. They were to be skillfully worked, just as the curtains were skillfully worked. 
The clothes were to hang together, just like the tent and, and, the, and the different fabrics were to hang together. The priest's coat was to be embroidered with needlework, just like the gate, the screen at the gate of the tabernacle courtyard. Therefore, the priest, in his clothing, is visibly connected to the place he served. It symbolized his holy status. Now, what does all this show? It simply shows this. The person and the place go together. There is no holy place without a holy person. There is no holy person without a holy place. The two go together. Now, just... In redemption, in the grand scheme of redemption, we see this. There's no heaven without high priest Jesus, right? And wherever high priest Jesus is, there is heaven. The person and the place are intimately connected with Jesus. Be sure when you long to be in God's presence, be sure when you long for heaven, you recognize that you're longing for Jesus himself. It comes with it. He comes with it. Far too often, Christians have this image of paradise that's filled with our favorite golf courses and our favorite ice creams and our favorite chocolate river, uh, chocolate milk river or whatever. But the idea is, is that when you think of the place, you think of the person. And when you think of the person, you think of the place. Wherever I am, that's what Jesus says, right? There you may be also. Wherever I am, the person, there, the place, you may be also. Person and place go together. Jesus is paradise. Paradise is wherever Jesus is. The tabernacle is connected to the priest. The priest is connected to the tabernacle. Somebody should make a song out of that. That sounds like the thigh bones connected to the hip bone or whichever bones. Yeah, I won't go too further before I prove my ignorance. Um, The priest's clothing represents glory and beauty, just as we said, but each part of it displays a deep significance. There's there's five basic pieces that we're going to look at. We're going to look at the ephod. We're going to look at the breast piece of judgment in the blue robe. We're going to look at the holy crown and the other garments, including the priest's underwear. And yes, there is significance to the underwear that the priest wears. So we will look at that in detail here in a moment. First, let's look at the ephod. Exodus chapter 28, verse 6 says this, And they shall make the ephod of gold, of blue and purple and scarlet yarns, and of fine twine linen skillfully worked. This ephod, which looked like the tabernacle curtains, was important because it served as the base for all the other, the, all the other pieces. It, it was a symbol of the, of the priest status. They were men who wore the linen ephod. That's how you knew that they were priests, as you saw what they wear. But specific to the high priest ephod, there were two onyx stones that were placed on each shoulder. And on each onyx stone, which by the way, where's the first time you see the onyx stones? It's in the Garden of Eden. On each onyx stone are six names of the tribes of Israel. So he's bearing these stones on his shoulder that bear the names of the people of Israel. Bear the names of the tribes of God's people. In verse 12, it says this, that the purpose is that he would bear the names before the Lord on his shoulder for remembrance. Literally, the priest walks in and God's mind is drawn to his people. He sees the names engraved. Now, God does this a lot. He makes a rainbow, right? And when he sees the rainbow, he's reminded of his promise never again to flood the earth. He sees that he commands that the onyx stones be made with the names of the people of God inscribed upon them. Why? So that when he sees them, he'll be reminded of his covenant love and his covenant promises. 
Now, why does he need all these reminders? Because God is forgetful? No, God never forgets. God never forgets. They're more for us than they are for him. Of course, he sees them, and he says he's reminded of his promises when he sees them, but we see them too. The whole point of these two onyx stones is for us to remember that God is forever mindful of his people. God does not forget our names. And he wants us to know he doesn't forget. He says something similar in Isaiah 49, 15 through 16. His people have been punished. He's, he's brought them discipline from these nations because of their idolatry. They're broken people. It's hard to imagine someone so broken and someone so shattered by the punishment of their own sin. And here's what God says. Yet, I will not forget you. Behold, I have engraved you on the palm of my hand. No more onyx stones needed. I've, I've put you on my hands. God is mindful. He never forgets. He always remembers. My friends, whatever you are going through today, whatever trials, whatever suffering, whatever loneliness, whatever brokenness, whatever it is, there is a high priest who bears your name before the Father. God never forgets. God never forgets. He is mindful of you. So the ephod then is the garment of remembrance. Literally, the whole purpose of it is to help God remember. And he needs no help remembering. So by cycle of logic, it's to help us remember that he remembers us. Next. The second piece of priestly clothing is the breast piece of judgment. The breast piece contains four rows of precious stones, such as sardis, topaz, carbuncle. There's even an emerald in there, sapphire, and a diamond um, set in the square-shaped breast piece. Now, each precious stone, not only are, they, are the names of the tribes of Israel carved into the onyx stone, it, they, they have their own, think of it like birth gems, right? So these are their own special gems. So on the diamond is the name of a tribe, and on the emerald is another tribe, and on the, the sapphire is another tribe. And so these are their, their own stones. So, so imagine, you're just seeing this gorgeous, colorful, beautiful breast piece filled with precious, precious stones. What is the point of that? Well, here's what I think it goes back to. In Exodus 19.5, God told his people that if they obeyed his law, they would be his treasured possession. Or in literally Hebrew, uh, in the Hebrew context, his precious jewel. His precious jewel. So here they are represented as a precious treasure, as a precious jewel. Symbolizing the fact that each pre- with each precious jewel is a reminder of his precious treasure, his precious people, the people he loves. Exodus chapter 28 verse 20 alludes to this. So Aaron shall bear the names of the sons of Israel in the breastpiece of judgment on his heart when he goes into the holy place. Why? Once again, to bring them to regular remembrance before the Lord. God sees the precious gems and he remembers how precious his people are to him. We see these same gems later in the in the new in the new heaven and new earth in the city of Jerusalem, once again reminding us that God holds his people as precious. 
We are precious in His sight. Now, I, I, if you know me, I am not a health, wealth, and prosperity gospel preacher. So I don't think God revolves around us or the universe revolves around us. I do think that God's thoughts are forever mindful of us. There is a deep love for God's people. There's a deep love that He has for us. To be sure, heaven and earth are not bent in our direction, in our worship, and in our glory. But God does bend heaven and earth out of love for us because we are his people. We are precious treasures in his sight. Now, there's more to consider about this specific piece of clothing. For example, why is it called the breast piece of judgment? I just thought that was odd when I saw that title. The breast piece of judgment. Well, the word judgment doesn't just mean judgment. It can also mean decision or discernment. Like which way is the right way to go? And then in 29.30, here's what God says, And in the breastpiece of discernment or decision, you shall put the Urim and the Thummim, and they shall be on Aaron's heart when he goes in before the Lord. Thus Aaron shall bear the discernment of the people of Israel on his heart before the Lord regularly. Now in this particular text, we're not told what the Urim and Thummim do, right? But if you go to other texts, we find out exactly what they do. Numbers 27, 21, for example, Joshua is told that he is going to go to Eleazar, the priest, who will inquire for him, how? By the discernment of the Urim before the Lord. So we don't know how these things worked. We don't know what they were, but in this specific stage of God's redemptive plan, this is how God's people discerned what he wanted them to do. So they would come to the priest who would then inquire of God for them, and then would reveal what God's word was, what God's will is through the Urim and the Thummim. So by using these stones, the priest is leading God's people to seek out God's will. Now, why is it so important that it's over Aaron's heart? That's weird. Well, I think it goes back to Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5. How are they to obey the Lord? They were to love the Lord their God. This is, this is basic catechism 101. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. And then he goes on to say later in verse 6 that they are to obey him with their heart. The law was to be on their heart. I think in this, in this visual representation of decision-making in Israel... It's over his heart. And the idea is that the main basic way that God's people discover God's will for their lives is by looking to his word, by looking to his law, by considering what God wants. This priest, who is the the religious leader in all of Israel, is constantly there to remind God's people that they do not run themselves. They do not lead themselves. There is a Lord we must go to to inquire of his will. It's a humbling factor, isn't it? That I don't, I'm not in charge of where I go. I'm not in charge of where this church goes. There is a Lord of his people who leads and guides and has a will for his people. And so the priest reminds them, hey, we have to stop. Before you attack, inquire of the Lord. Before you stay, inquire of the Lord. Before you go and do these things, inquire of the Lord. Remember that there is a king over your life, that there is a Lord who has a will, and our purpose is to do the will of the Lord. So this breast piece is the garment of discernment. 
Now, the third piece of priestly clothing is the blue robe that goes over the ephod. At the bottom of the ephod, on its hem, we, we see that they hang pomegranates and golden bells. So you have a pomegranate and then golden bell, pomegranate, golden bell. And the purpose of this is stated in verse 35. And it shall be on Aaron when he ministers, and its sound shall be heard when he goes into the holy place before the Lord, and when he comes out, so that he does not die. Now, once again, God didn't need these things to remind him of his promises. God's all-knowing, right? And God didn't need these bells to know when Aaron was coming. It's not like you can play sneak up on the all-knowing creator of the universe. Can you imagine how annoying it is? My kids, um, you know, I had them all weekend um, to myself, which was great. Um, and so I'd be, I learned to never turn my back to all three of them. There's they're six, there are four, and there are two. And man, they can create an, an attack plan to jump on daddy like crazy, right? So what I did was I, I realized that there were way, things I could put in the floor so I can hear them coming behind me, right? So they'd be walking and Titus would kick a ball out of the way and I'd hear the ball roam like, oh, he's about to jump on me, right? This is not what this is, okay? God doesn't need these things to forewarn him that his children are coming into his presence, The whole point of this is not so that God will go, oh, I hear Aaron coming and turn around. The point of this is that when the bells ring, Aaron will know he's coming into the presence of the holy God. Those bells ringing as he goes in and out of the, you can just imagine he's he's coming into the tent and his, the hem of his robe brushes against the curtains. And it's just another reminder, hey, this is not just your tent. This is not just another av- everyday average place. You don't come in here speaking the way that you want to speak. You don't come in here thinking the way that you want to think. You come in here approaching a, reverently a holy God. I mean, God says it, that if, he doesn't have, that if he doesn't have these things, that he will die. My friends, one of the biggest things missing in the modern day church, we're such a loving, feel-good church that we fail to realize that God is reverent and holy. One of the main things missing in modern day teaching is God is still a holy God. And he's to be approached in reverence, in worship. He's to be approached knowing that he's the creator of all the universe and we are unholy and he is holy and it's only because of his will and his grace that we come in at all that's the grace of god and so this blue robe is the garment of reverence next the high priest was to be given a holy crown and on it was engraved the words holy to the lord right kadesh al yahweh right it's a, it's amazing um if you if you want to track God writing things on people's foreheads throughout the Bible, it'll take you some amazing places. Holy to the Lord, belonging to God. This is God's person. He's not his own. He is God's. Verse, uh, chapter 28, verse 38 says this, It shall be on Aaron's forehead, and Aaron shall bear any guilt. This is interesting. Aaron shall bear any guilt from the holy things that the people of Israel consecrate as their holy gifts. It shall be regularly on his forehead that he that they, the gifts, may be accepted before the Lord. Now the word for uh, the crown here is diadem. It's, just, it's the same thing as crown. Whoever has it typically is a royal, regal figure, right? So Aaron in this light is a type of king. But this crown does something specific. 
okay? It's not just that Aaron has kingship over people, right? There will be a king to come for sure. But Aaron is kind of this regal priest king, this, this regal priest is going to be able to remove any unintentional, inadvertent guilt from the sacrifices the people offer. Suppose they, they inadvertently come and offer the sacrifice, offer the wrong sacrifice with a blemish or whatever it is. This royal high priest bearing the crown holy to the Lord is able to remove the guilt and it may, and he makes it an acceptable sacrifice to God. I don't think I have to tell you how pregnant this is with, with meaning. It is only because of a royal priesthood who bears the guilt away from God's people that we are allowed to make acceptable sacrifices to God. The royal guilt bearer taking away the iniquity, taking away the guilt so that we can now offer to God that which is his and offer it acceptably. It's not that the sacrifices themselves are acceptable. It's that there's a royal priest who makes them acceptable. My friends, this sermon is not an acceptable sacrifice unless my high king and priest, Jesus Christ, makes it acceptable. Your tithe is not acceptable. Your good deeds are not acceptable. The way you love is not acceptable. Unless Jesus, your high priest who bears the crown, makes it acceptable to God. Just so everybody knows. Doesn't this forever humble us? What do we have that we've not been given? I can't even bring an offering without my priest, allowing it to be acceptable. There is nothing in and of myself that makes anything that I have or could give acceptable to God outside of the fact that I have a royal high priest who bears my guilt and takes it away. I'm getting way ahead of my manuscript. That was supposed to come way later. So you're going to get it twice. In the final section of verses of this chapter... God commanded that coats, caps, sashes, and undergarments be made for priests to serve in the tabernacle. Um, They're to be given linen undergarments, and you see this in verses 42 through 43, um, to cover their naked flesh. And it also says that if they they do have naked flesh in the tabernacle, here's what's going to happen. They're going to bear guilt and they will die. Now, this is interesting, right? Now, it, it makes sense. Who would want anyone to come into their house naked? right? I mean, I totally sympathize with God's rule here, um, but I think, it, I think it refers to something else. When we think about the connection between the priest and Adam, right? Adam was made and he was naked and unashamed, right? But then he sinned, and what happened to Adam? He realized all of a sudden he was naked and ex- exposed. He was shameful. From then on out, Nakedness was no longer a symbol of the lack of shame. Nakedness was a symbol of shame. Sin had transformed being naked, as weird as that is, to where it became a, not a symbol of freedom, but a symbol of exposure and brokenness. And here, God covers the shame. God covers the brokenness. Man's sin brought shame. Man's sin brought exposure. Man's sin uncovered us for what we are. Rebels. 
unholy and unclean. And yet, God covers his priest. Reverses the fall, in a sense. Not all the way, but just in this little way, whispers his intention to redeem that which has been ruined. Now, we get on to their consecration. Chapter 29, verses 1 through 27. It gives specific detailed instructions that are to be followed. Aaron and his sons are to be washed with water, verse 4, which symbolizes their purification to stand before God. And then they'll be clothed with the garments and ordained. Think of this as Aaron's coronation as a royal priest. Okay, The, the crown is put on his head in this chapter. And then Aaron was anointed, which made him one of the anointed ones, one of the Mashiachs, right? Um, he becomes one of the anointed ones. Now, the whole process was made official through three sacrifices, the first one being a sin offering. And the sin offering simply was slain so that it would atone for the altar. It's interesting that for the altar to be made usable and ready to, to receive sacrifices is through sacrifice. The blood makes the altar acceptable so that God's people can now bring offerings to him. So the sin offering cleanses the altar. Second, we have a whole burnt offering. Now, if you don't know much about whole burnt offerings, whole burnt offerings are, are very interesting. It is, the, it, the animal is completely desecrated, decimated, broken. Slaughtered, blood spilled out, intestines pulled out, intestines washed. I mean, this is gross. I've actually seen this happen uh, when I was a missionary in another country, and um, it's—I mean—it is a grotesque thing. Now, to think that as an offering, this whole burnt offering, this animal is completely destroyed. Why? On my behalf. What are the wages of sin? The wages of sin is death destruction. I mean, just, just imagine God being able to fry you to a crisp. That's what these sacrifices represented. Slaughtered, broken. And so as this whole burnt offering is going up, it, it releases a pleasing, an appeasing is what the, the Hebrew is, an appeasing aroma before the Lord. And the priests themselves are reminded this was done for us. This is why they laid their hands on the head of the sacrifice, recognizing that this was a sacrifice done for their behalf. And then there's a third sacrifice called the peace sacrifice. It's basically a whole burnt offering, but it's a little different because when the whole burnt offering is offered, they get to sit at the, at the tabernacle's entrance and eat before the Lord. Basically symbolizing once again that fellowship with God is founded and based on what? The sacrifice of an innocent victim. The sacrifice of something or someone on our behalf. So they have this peace offering, and they eat in fellowship with God. Their robes have been sprinkled by blood. The sacrifices are complete. The flesh is eaten. The thing that had, and this is amazing, the thing through which gave them atonement, you see those words, they eat. As acceptance, like this is how we have received atonement. Does that remind you of the Lord's Supper at all? Holy to God. Fellowshipping with God because of the sacrifice that God has allowed to take place. Now finally we have holy service. 
Having spoken of the priest's clothing and consecration, it's now time to lay out their service. And the very first point of their service in Exodus 28, 38 through 46, is that they're to make offerings every day. When? In the morning and in the evening. It sets up a, sends up a pleasing aroma to the Lord. Now this is the point of the priesthood. A holy person making sacrifices, pleasing God with the aroma of sacrifices in a holy place so that the people can enjoy God's dwelling. It's as this happens that God promises in verses 45 through 46, I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God, and they will know that I am their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. Now moving into chapter 30, also commands that an altar of incense be made. If you look up incense in later passages like Psalm 141.2, for example, or Revelation 5.8, you find out that incense almost always symbolizes prayers. So this priest is symbolically sending up incense before the Lord, symbolically sending up prayers. Now, the altar is to be atoned for and sprinkled once a year by blood. So the, pre- the high priest comes in, he takes the blood of the sin sacrifice, and he throws it on the altar of incense. What do you think this reminds God's people of? Here's what John Calvin says. The altar of incense was purified by the sprinkling of blood that they, Israel, might learn that their prayers obtained acceptance through sacrifices. My friends, this is a hint that prayers are made acceptable to God by the spilt blood of a sacrifice. We can't even offer sacrifices without a high priest making them acceptable. And now we're told we really can't even pray without the blood of a sacrifice. That it is blood-bought prayers that go up to God. Next, Moses and the priests are collect ransom money. God says that a census tax is to be taken and that this is going to be atonement money. And as the people pay for their atonement, it will bring... Uh, the people of Israel to remembrance before the Lord so as to make atonement for their lives. And so one of the roles of the priests is as the census is done, they go around and they collect the tithes and they, I don't know why this thing is popping, um, but they're to collect the tithes and they're to collect all the atonement money and the the uh, ransom money so that the people will not die. That's significant because somebody else pays that atonement money later and it's not the people happens to be the priest. Third, God commands that a bronze basin be made for the priest to wash their hands and feet as they enter and exit the presence of God. They shall wash with water so that they may not die. Psalm 24 verse 3 asks this, Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord, and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. So washing in the bronze basin symbolizes the purity that is required to go into God. Now finally, the Lord gives detailed warnings of this anointing oil and the incense. He tells them how it's to be made, the ingredients they need to make it, but then he tells them that anyone who tries to replicate this, this is important for you people who love, uh, what is it, essential oils, right? There's no essential oil or incense that you can replicate in Israel. If God made it holy, it is to be holy, right, for his, for his priests alone. Nobody else is to have it. Nobody's to be anointed with the oil except the priest, and nobody is to burn the incense except the priest. It's for the priesthood alone. 
That's a lot of details for the priesthood, isn't it? So, now that we've gotten through this section, let's consider briefly how Christ has accomplished all of this. My friends, I I hope you're seeing through my time of ministry here that there are no insignificant details in Scripture. The whole Bible is God's Word, and we believe here at Grace Church that the whole Bible points us to our great Redeemer and Savior, Jesus Christ. Even the priest's clothes. Let's consider it. Reflecting on the priesthood, the author of Hebrews writes, Since then we have a great high priest who passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. He says that in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14. Now notice he doesn't just call Jesus a priest or a high priest. He calls him a great high priest, a mega high priest. Okay? And then he spends the greater part of five chapters proving how Jesus' priesthood is superior to the one we just read about. Five chapters in Hebrews, just going point for point for point, why Jesus is a better high priest. According to the priestly service that Jesus offers, accordingly, the priestly service that Jesus offers is much more excellent. That's the words he uses. Much more excellent than the service we see rendered in Exodus chapter 28 through 30. Now, I got to tell you, if I were to make a list of all the ways Jesus is a better high priest, we'd be here all day. So we're just going to consider specifically in those categories we looked at, the priest's clothes, the priest's consecration, and the priest's service, and how Jesus does better than each of those. First, Jesus wears the priesthood better than Aaron did. Jesus wears the priesthood better than Aaron did. Someone um, came in uh, wearing the same jacket that I was wearing. They said, hey, we've got the same jacket. And I was like, yeah, it's obviously clear you wear it better than I do. This is true of the priesthood in Jesus. It looks similar, but Jesus wears it way better than Aaron ever could. So Aaron wore a breastpiece of stones right, to remind God of God's people, to remind God of his covenant. But Jesus doesn't wear stones. He wears scars that are eternal. He presents himself as a lamb that is slain. That is not a temporary thing in redemptive history. For all eternity, from this moment on, from the time he died on the cross, through all eternity, do you know how long the nail scars will last? Do you know how long we'll be able to see the thorn pricks in his forehead? Do you know how long we'll be able to see the whip marks on his back? For how long? For all eternity. He is a lamb that was slain. He doesn't change that. His scars don't heal. His scars don't go away. They don't wipe away. He bears them before God. And for all eternity, when God sees the scars of Jesus, he's mindful of his people. Isaac Watts was meditating on Jesus being a slain lamb for all eternity. Not a dead lamb, a slain lamb. Big difference. Here's what Isaac Watts writes. This is beautiful. I love Watts. If you don't have a book on Watts, go get a book on Watts. It's amazing. Jesus, the King of glory, reigns on Zion's heavenly hill. Looks like a lamb that has been slain and wears his priesthood still. 
looks like a lamb that has been slain and wears his priesthood still. Awesome. What about the breastpiece of discernment? It rested over Aaron's heart, demonstrating that Israel was to follow God's commands with all their heart. Aaron had to use the Urim and Thummim. And I know many of you just reading this are just wishing, why can't we have the Urim and Thummim back? Wouldn't it be just so great to reach in your pockets, God, do you want me to buy that house or not? Pull out one. And God's like, boom, this is the one. That'd be great, right? God, which college you want me to go to? Boom, this one, right? That'd be fantastic. My friends, because of Jesus, we have something far superior to Urim and Thum. We have God's spirit in us. We don't need stones to tell us what to do anymore. We have the spirit of God himself dwelling inside. We don't need to go to rocks. We have the rock who leads us and guides us and shows us how to obey God. And he doesn't just show us how to obey God. He puts the spirit in our hearts, not so that the law would symbolically be over our heart, but that the law would be written on our heart. Aaron wore the golden crown. And the whole point of that was to, in a, to remove any inadvertent guilt from the sacrifices so it would be an acceptable sacrifice to God. Jesus wears the priestly crown, however, and he doesn't just remove inadvertent guilt. And he doesn't just remove it from the sacrifices. He removes intentional guilt from our hearts. It's not just accidental guilt, accidental iniquity. He removes an evil conscience, is what Hebrews 10.22 says. The guilt is completely removed. Finally, Aaron and his sons had to be clothed so that their nakedness would not be be, uh, exposed and they wouldn't be ashamed. Jesus doesn't need to be covered. He covers. My friends, in Isaiah 61.10, Isaiah praises this fact that we have a God who doesn't need to be clothed by us, but who clothes us with his robes. We are those who are naked and ashamed, those who are exposed, and Jesus wraps a robe of righteousness, his robe of righteousness around us. Second, Jesus' consecration is better than Aaron's. It is better because while the sins of Aaron and his sons had to be atoned for through the blood of bulls and goats, Jesus needed no atonement. Aaron and his sons needed a sacrifice to atone for their sins. I'm taking off the jacket. I think that's what it is. That's not going to help. There we go. Aaron and his sons needed sacrifices to atone for their sins. Jesus was the sacrifice that atoned for, us, for our sins, not his sins. Aaron and his sons had to be washed in the bronze basin. Jesus doesn't need to be washed. He washes us with pure water. He needed no blood to be sprinkled on him to make him holy. He sprinkled his own blood on others to make us holy. Jesus is a greater high priest. Aaron's sacrifice sent up a pleasing aroma to God, but Jesus himself offered his own life and became a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Ephesians 5.2. Aaron's sacrifices are impressive. 
sweet smelling to God. Jesus himself offers himself and himself is the pleasing aroma. Third, Jesus' service is better than Aaron's. Aaron and his sons got up every morning and wiped the crest out of their sleepy eyes. They got up, they brought the lambs and the goat, they brought the lambs into the tabernacle and every morning slaughtered a lamb, burnt it on the altar. Evening came, it was time to slaughter another lamb, put it up on the altar. Next morning they woke up, wiped the crust from their eyes, slaughtered another lamb, put it on the altar. Evening came, slaughtered another lamb, put it on the altar. 365 days every year of their lives. Hebrews 10, 11 through 12. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Can you imagine that? Jesus doesn't wake up morning after morning after morning. Jesus never sleeps, first off. But Jesus doesn't wake up morning after morning making sacrifice after sacrifice. He makes a single sacrifice and then sits down because he doesn't sacrifice bulls and goats. He sacrifices himself. The Son of God took on flesh to die. Why? To make eternal redemption. Not daily redemption. Eternal redemption. Aaron and his sons walked around the camp with a plate and they told the people, you have to give so many shekels for your atonement money. You have to pay the ransom so that we can have the service for the tabernacle so that God will remember you. But Jesus doesn't do that. First Peter chapter 1, verses 18 through 19 says that the ransom money has not been paid by us. And it also says that it's not been paid with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. My friends, the Old Testament, the Old Covenant says pay the ransom. Pay the ransom and do not die. Pay the ransom and you will not die. Pay the atonement money, you will not die. The gospel says Jesus paid your ransom. Jesus paid the atonement money. And he didn't do it with gold. He did it with blood. What is more, the anointing oil and the incense in the Exodus were for the high priest and the high priest alone. No one else could have it. But in Jesus, as we come to Jesus in faith, as we come to believe in Christ, as we trust in Jesus, guess what happens? We become the anointed ones by who? By God himself. 2 Corinthians 1.21. Who are the anointed priests in the new covenant? We are. It's not, a, it's not anointing oil for one single man anymore. Every one of us is giving the anointing oil of the high priest. Why? Because God makes us a priesthood, a holy nation. We are the anointed ones. But not even that, not even, not just that. The incense isn't reserved for the priest alone anymore. Listen to what happens to us in 2 Corinthians chapter 2 verse 15. Those who trust in Christ become the aroma of Christ to God. Become the aroma of Christ to God. My friends, you hear what that's saying about you? You are the incense that goes up as a pleasing fragrance to God because of Jesus. 
My friends, if we do nothing else when we gather for worship on Sunday, my hope is is that God's throne room is being filled with the fragrance of us praying and worshiping. My friends, an Israelite who understood their place in redemption history rightly would have longed for the ability to walk into the tent, walk past the veil, and to burn incense. Jesus died and he ripped the veil open. And he says, now you all can come in and burn incense to the great God. Oh, but you don't understand, I had the kids all weekend. Thanks. It was a busy week. I really need a Sabbath from the Sabbath. Jesus tore the veil. That courtyard, private yard fence came crashing down, and now we're all able to go into God and to be an aroma of Christ to God. That's what we do every day, and that's what we do, especially when we gather. Why is worship necessary, if nothing else, to fill God's throne room with pleasure? You may not know, you may not understand what you get out of church, what do people get out of church, what do people do when they get together, when they worship. My friends, if we did nothing else but that, we're glorifying God. Sure, you're here to hear a good sermon, to be challenged, to be stretched. Sure, you're here for your kids to get the social, uh, to get some social benefit from it. Sure, you probably passed out a business card or two while you were here. But my friends, none of those reasons are the reasons we gather together. We gather together because together we make a sweet-smelling fragrance in the throne room of God. That's what our worship is. We don't come into the Holy of Holies. This isn't the Holy of Holies. We are the Holy of Holies. That sends up the sweet-smelling fragrance because of the blood of Jesus. We have blood-bought prayers. The blood has been sprinkled on the altar of our hearts, and now we can shoot up incense day after day, and especially when we get together. Let's fill it up. Let's fill the throne room. Why come to the gathering tonight? I've actually heard people mention that before. We have a, a monthly prayer gathering on, at the, on the last Sunday of every month. Why come to the gathering? What's the purpose of it? I can pray at home. Well, of course you can. But at the gathering, you'll be a visual representation of the incense going up to God. You'll be reminded that together we fill the throne room with a sweet-smelling fragrance. I mean, but to be sure, one drop of the essential oil in the fuser smells good, but it takes 10 drops to really make it really smell good, right? That's why we gather. That's why we worship. That's why we praise, because we want to send up Sweet-smelling fragrance to the Lord. Now finally, and I'm well over time. The greatest reason the priesthood of Christ is far more superior to Aaron's is simply this. Are you ready for the profoundness of this? Aaron died. Eleazar took his place. Eleazar died. His son took his place. His son died and his son took his place. Jesus died, he was buried, and then he rose again. And never dies again. Hebrews just glories in this fact. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing their office. Do you hear the profoundness in that? They were prevented by death from continuing to be our priest. But Jesus holds his priesthood permanently because he what? 
continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. Why? Because he always lives to make intercession for them. We're not waiting for a change out. We're not waiting for Jesus to die and get a new high priest. My friends, he is your high priest forever. And because he lives forever, he makes intercession forever. Jesus is better. So what's the point? What's the application? What do we get out of this? The author of Hebrews puts it this way. And since we have a great high priest over the household of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. Let us draw near. My friends, there are some of you here today that are far off from God in your thoughts, in your actions, in your motivations. The way has been opened up, and through Jesus Christ, you don't have to remain far off anymore. You can be brought near. And you don't just come in, right, uh, fearful and trembling anymore. You can come in with full assurance, come in confidently, not self-confidently, but blood-bought confidently. You're covered, sprinkled in the blood of Jesus' son, God's Son, Jesus Christ who died, was buried, and rose again, and lives eternally. My friends, we can go in. We can dwell in the holy of holies. God's house has become our house. God's holy place is now our holy place. He has given a holy person, and now we can have the holy dwelling of God for all eternity. May every action, the way you talk to your wife, the way you talk to your kids, the way you think about your job, the way you look at what is yours, the way you look at your glory, the way you look at your reputation, the way you talk about others behind their back, may all of that resemble someone who comes near to God, not someone who stands outside the curtain and doesn't know God. When people see you, when people experience you, they should have an example, an illustration of someone who smells like they've been a fragrance to God. They should see the glory and beauty of God in your garments. In the garments of your deeds and your thoughts. When people look at your life, do they see, wow, there's glory and beauty of God right there. If you don't know Jesus, we invite you today to know him. You cannot stand before God and live without a great high priest who intercedes on your behalf. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for the love you've given. And God, I pray that you will be with us now as we worship you and we praise you that you have given us a great high priest who stands before the throne of God. May we be those who come and draw near confidently in worship. We pray this in your son's name. Amen.